Most people here think they know me, and they think they know when I'm up to preach because they can look out on Sunday morning and see me walking around, and if I'm wearing khakis or dress pants and a button-up shirt and tie, then they know I'm up to preach. But if I'm wearing these, by the way, amazing t-shirts that we give to anyone who volunteers with kids' ministry and jeans, then I'm back with the kids. Well, this morning, I wanted to keep you on your toes and be a little bit unpredictable, and so I decided to wear this instead. It actually reminds me of a story of mine from a professor from college. Uh, He did stuff like this. Uh, Most often when he came to class, uh, he dressed a little rough. He'd have on an old pair of shoes, an old raggy jeans, an old t-shirt, hoodie. Oftentimes, if he had a hoodie on, the hood was pulled up over his head and the strings drawn tight. He was, anyways, and that's how he would teach. Um, But one day, I was in the cafeteria, and I saw him, and he was looking different than what he normally did. He didn't have on his rough jeans and all of that. He he had on a three-piece suit. And I'm like, so I go up and ask him, I'm like, what is this all about? Like, sometimes you look rough, and today you look like you're headed to a wedding. Like, what is going on, Professor Dyke? And this was his answer. If they can't predict you, they can't control you. So here I'm in. I'm being uncontrollable today. I don't know if I'll ever forget that story. There's a lot of things about Professor Dyke that I don't think I'll ever forget. He was a little bit of an unpredictable and I guess uncontrollable guy. Isn't it funny, though, sometimes what we remember about people? Sometimes we have great memories of people that make us laugh and chuckle, but sometimes the memory we have of people can be anger or a memory of the last time we spoke to someone because of something we or they did to sever the relationship. The last several weeks, we've been in this series entitled 10, where we've taken a look at the Ten Commandments given by God to Moses at Mount Sinai and how they have relevance today. And we saw last week, as Jared kind of established for us, the first four commands are concerned about this love for God, and the last six are about a love for people, for others. And whether or not it's a love for God or a love for others, all of these commands reveal to us something of the true intent of how God designs, it has, desires us to live. And that when we choose to live God's way, there's blessings that come. And each week we've established and we've said that when we don't live God's way, we call that sin. The Bible calls that sin. And we have said week after week that sin always leads to suffering Like when we sin by breaking the first command and putting other gods in the center of our life instead of the true God, God most high. It leads to suffering because we never find fulfillment. We never find satisfaction because we're replacing the most important thing for things that do not last, things that are temporary. As Paul puts it in Romans, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images and things made by human hands. Or when we uh, sin by making idols for ourselves, it leads to suffering because they too lead to disappointment. Our sports teams loses. Our jobs don't lead to where we were hoping it would. We put the created things above the creator. Or when we sin by breaking the third command, we take the name of the Lord in, in vain. It leads to suffering because we misrepresent the true God. We take lightly the most significant, glorious, and upright being God himself. Or when we sin by choosing not to put work and rest in their right context, it too leads to suffering. We can either become workaholics and never rest like God commands, and that can make us bitter and selfish and prideful. But also on the flip side, if we choose not to work and have this laissez-faire approach to work, we're missing opportunities to find and be who God created us to be, to rule the world the way he intended. 
Or as we saw last week, when we sin by failing to honor our father and our mother, it can mean that our families often fall apart. And today is no different as we look at the sixth command. Murder leads to suffering. But all of us know this. We have seen, heard, and some in this room have even personally experienced the suffering caused by someone who's murdered another human being. And I can almost guarantee that everyone in here would agree that carelessly and viciously taking the life of another human being is a high offense and deserves due punishment. It's a gross and highly offensive crime. Even our ruling government understands this. It's why we have laws around manslaughter, even so much so that we have degrees of punishment for the various degrees of murder. But for us to understand more fully this command and why it is such a high offense, we have to understand where this command has its basis. See, it finds its basis in one of the core and foundational beliefs of uh, evangelical Christianity, but also it finds its basis on the first pages of Scripture, and it's this that all human beings have been created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Humanity, man and woman, was the last thing that God created. And most people agree that this kind of order of creation was to show that humans are the supreme object of God's creation. And in creating mankind, he gave us, man and woman, something he did not give to the sun or the moon, to the water or to the land or the sky or the plants. He gave us something he didn't even give the animals. He gave us something that he gave no other part of the visible creation, and that is he gave us his image. And this means, first and foremost, that we are unique from the rest of the created world. This is why a few chapters later in the book of Genesis, when Noah and his family and two of every kind of animal survived the flood, God gives this command to Noah. Genesis 9, starting in verse 3, everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, the lifeblood of another human being, I will surely demand an accounting. I'll demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. And in these verses, God is telling Noah that our being made in God's image, it separates us from the animals. We're unique. Because here's the reality. We're allowed to take the life of an animal and even eat it for food. But mankind, humans, they're made in the image of God. And so this is why God demands that if you take the life of another human being, you have to give an account for it. It's not just something you can walk away having done and not pay the penalty. And this fact is the reason why murder warrants the possibility of the death penalty. Humans are unique from the rest of the created world, and it's because God has given us his image. And that word image has the basic meaning of being a representation of something. And that's exactly what humans do. They were made in the image of God in the sense that they were made to embody, 
model or represent something of the very nature of God. But what is that thing that we were made to represent? What do we have that no created, a visible created thing has? What do we share with God? I think by and large the thing that we were made to represent, it, represent is founded in our true essence, our true selves, and that's our spirit. See, you and I are not just physical beings. We have something more, and that something more is a spirit. Some might call it a soul And because God gave us a soul or a spirit, he shared with us a part of himself. Jesus tells us this in John 4, 24, that God is spirit. Spirit is the very essence of God's nature. Now, unlike you and I who have a created spirit, God, he's uncreated. He's eternal. But being created in his image means that we're unique because we are made to represent him. And we represent him by being given a spirit God is spirit, and he's given us a spirit. But in giving us a soul or a spirit, he's given us even something deeper. It means he's given us personhood. And that means that God has created every human being for incredible things. He's created you to rule this world. And that means that he created you to use your intellectual, creative, moral, free will, and emotional capacities to create, dream, think up, design, build, discover, and produce. But also, he has created you with the capacity to have a personal relationship with him. And that means that you and I can come before him as humble servants. But this capacity to have a personal relationship with the personal God also means that he wants to share himself with us. He loves and cares for us and wants to have a deep relationship with us. And this, mankind being creatures who are made to worship and be obedient to the creator, but also made to love, for, uh, to love and have communion with that same creator God, that is what separates us from the rest of the visible creation. After all, that's the whole message of the Bible, that you and I were created in the image of God. Our sin broke that image, but God sent Jesus, his son, to show his power over sin by dying on the cross and pay for the guilt of sin. But then he gives us his spirit to come and restore or recreate that image inside of us. And why? So that we can be with him forever, live eternally with him, be in communion and relationship and fellowship with him. Listen, God didn't send Jesus for the plants. He didn't send them for the animals. God sent Jesus for human beings because they're unique. They're made in his image. And that means that they have the capacity to have a relationship with him. And this is why the sixth command is so serious. Because when we violate or break the sixth command and take the life of another human being, we've stripped someone of their personhood. And in doing so, we devalue their capacity for relationship with God. Now, the Bible tells us, and this is true, we can kill the body, but we can't kill the soul. However, it's also true that when we take the life of another human being, in effort, what we're saying to that person is your personhood doesn't matter. You're not worth living. You're just as good dead. We're devaluing them as a human by taking their life as if their life was disposable and had no significance. But God He tells us that we're created in his image. And it means we're not disposable or worthless. We have incredible worth and value because we have the capacity to have a personal relationship with him. And so we can dogmatically say this this morning, that every human being is made in the image of God and therefore has worth and value. 
because they have a capacity to have a personal relationship with the personal God. And this, this is the basis of the sixth command. When we murder or kill another human being who has done nothing to deserve the warrant of being killed, we violated this sacredness of human life. The sacredness that God himself has established and given each and every human being. But let's be honest. Most of us probably have never broken this command, right? Perhaps not. But if human life is this sacred, then perhaps it's more than just the physical act of murder that constitutes a violation of the sixth command. Let's turn to Matthew in chapter 5. We've turned here already once in this series, and the reason why we do things like this is because anytime we're looking at a topic, we can't just look at one passage or one verse. I often use this phrase, we need to look at the whole counsel of Scripture, everything that God has to say on the issue. Furthermore, as Christians, we want to know what Jesus has to say on the issue. And believe it or not, Jesus does have something to say about this very serious command. Matthew chapter 5 starts the beginning of this three-chapter homily known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, Jesus is trying to teach us about the kingdom of God and reveal to us more about who God is. And so Jesus actually takes several of the Ten Commandments and creates this pattern for helping our righteousness go much deeper than that of the religious leader of Jesus' day. He starts out this pattern by saying, You have heard it said, and then he'll state the command, But then he'll say, but I tell you, and then he'll explain or interpret more fully that command. And in doing this, what he's trying to do is to shift the focus from the letter of the law to the heart of the lawgiver. And the very first command that he tackles is the sixth command. See if you can catch his pattern here. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard it said to the people long ago. You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Did you catch it? You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. He does the same thing with adultery, with divorce, making oaths, repaying evil, and loving your neighbor. Now, many commentators and teachers and preachers, they've done great work to show us and to teach us that what Jesus was doing here is establishing for us that God cares just as much about where our heart is than about the physical acts that we can see on the outside. So he doesn't just care that you've never committed the physical act of murder. He also cares about your heart and your attitude towards other human beings. Jesus is trying to reveal to us the true intent of God's law, which is righteousness, and a righteousness that surpasses the religious leaders of Jesus' day who only cared about the outward appearance, who only looked at these nice t-shirts that we give kids ministry volunteers. He He didn't want us to look at the kind of righteousness of those religious leaders. He wanted us to look at the righteousness and the perfection of God. It's why he says this in Matthew 5, 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so, for us today, what I want us to catch is that while the original command, do not murder, may have been concerned with regulating acts of violence within the covenant community of Israel, the intent underlying the sixth command was to cultivate a deepened sense of worth and of sanctity of human life. To deepen a sense of worth and sanctity of human life. Because the issue is not just that we're taking the life of another human being. 
It's that we're stripping them of the image in which they are created in. See, if you and I weren't created in the image of God, then it wouldn't matter. It'd be no different than killing an animal or plucking a flower in the field so as to kill it. But since humans are created in the image of God, since we have worth and value given to us by our creator, and since we have the capacity to have a personal relationship with the personal God, murder becomes a high offense. But not just the physical act of murder. Also, as Jesus says, our attitude, our words, and our anger toward other human beings, that also is a high offense. Listen again to what he said. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus tells us, if you murder, you'll be guilty of judgment. And that's what the law says. And Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. So he agrees, if you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But he, unlike the Ten Commandments, doesn't stop there. He says, but I tell you, if you're angry with another human being, you are subject to judgment. So the same sentencing given to someone for committing the act of murder is also given to someone who gets angry with another human being. And similarly, for anyone who uses careless, demeaning, and insulting words to describe someone else, they're subject to judgment, the same judgment given to someone who commits the physical act of murder. That word raka that we see in the text, it means empty-headed, good for nothing. And chances are we've used words like that before to describe another person. You empty-headed, worthless fool, good-for-nothing brat. And see, in the heart and in the mind of the lawgiver, he takes a serious offense to that because he's given that person whom you just called a useless, good-for-nothing fool his image. And in doing so, he's accredited to them worth and value, meaning and purpose. And with your simple, careless and demeaning words, you've attempted to take away their true identity and value as God's creatures away from them. So when we get angry with one another, When we use careless and demeaning words towards others, we are making them out to be something less than human. And that's why we're subject to the same judgment as those who break the sixth command. Jesus' followers understood this. Jesus' own brother understood this. It's why in the book of James, the brother of Jesus tells us this, James 3, verse 9, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings, catch this, who've been made in God's likeness. Now, chapter 3 of James, what he's trying to tell us is to get control of our tongue. That our tongue's this deadly poison, and it can lead us to doing incredible damage to those around us. But in this verse that we just read, what he says is the tongue, well, the tongue, it comes on Sunday morning and sings praises to God. It, It sings words like, you've broken every chain, there's salvation in your name. But then it goes out on Monday morning to work, or it comes home on Wednesday night and says, you lazy, you son, you worthless, good-for-nothing, empty-headed fool. And notice why James says it's such a big deal. Because when we curse another person, we've cursed someone who's been made in God's likeness. Look at that verse, who's been made in God's likeness. When you say careless and demeaning words, you say these things to someone who has been made in the likeness or in the image of God. That's why even our heart 
in our attitude toward other human beings is important. Because Jesus and his followers weren't concerned just about murder. They're also concerned about the heart of the issue. They wanted to address the fundamental attitudes and the fundamental practices that reflect a devaluing of others, which is a root of a nasty disregard for human life. It's when we commit acts of injustice to those around us. And in doing that, we redefine good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others, devaluing the dignity and the worth that God has given to those other human beings. Check out this video by The Bible Project. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? 
Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You and I are guilty of breaking the sixth command. We've done injustices towards other human beings in one way or another, whether that be with our careless words, our anger, or our attitudes towards others. We've made someone else who's been made in the image of God out to be something less than human. And when Jesus comes along and shows us the true intent and the true heart of the lawgiver to explain to us more fully the meaning and offensiveness of stripping someone of their worth who's been made in the image of God, he has in mind and he envisions this future and this place where hostility and broken relationships are no longer present because he cares deeply about a world where all human life is valued, where broken relationships are mended, where years of anger and hatred and grudges are resolved. He came and he died to rescue a world where other people are not treated as disposable throwaways, where people aren't used and abused, where our words towards others would be ones that would lift them up and show them that they're made in God's image instead of tearing them down and stripping them of their worth. 
God desires that we would seek justice, that we would love mercy, and that we would walk humbly with him. And Jesus, who is God, who has the heart of God, he desires the same thing. And because of that, Jesus gives this very practical step for what you and I need to do to resolve the conflicts, the anger, and the issues we have with other human beings that we've left unresolved. He desires that we would seek out justice in these relationships, make those relationships right. He goes on in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled then, then come and offer your gift. But then he tells us, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together along the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. So here, Jesus has just finished explaining and telling us that our anger toward other human beings and careless demeaning words, they're just as offensive as murder. But then he goes on to tell us and explain to us how we can begin to restore broken relationships where we've held on to anger, where we've been guilty of breaking relationships. And there are two scenes that Jesus depicts here. First is the scene of someone who's performing a religious act. They're offering their gift at the altar. What Jesus wants this person to do is to leave the religious act, for that religious act to be interrupted in the pursuit of reconciling a relationship. And the second scenario that Jesus depicts is someone who's a, a person who's been taken to court or is being taken to court for some issue where they've offended someone else. And again, Jesus wants the offender to go and work on reconciling the relationship early in the process before the judicial system gets involved and it gets out of hand. Whether or not you'll ever be involved in one of these two situations, that's not quite the point. The point that Jesus had in mind here is reconciliation, making relationships right. And in order for us to begin to value human life, we need to reconcile our broken relationships. If you realize through your actions that you've done something so as to devalue another human being who's been made in the image of God, you need to go and be reconciled to them. Go and resolve the difference, differences between you and them. And the reason this is so imperative is to hold on to those anger, to hold on to that anger and to those grudges and to continue to have that negative attitude toward another human being means that you're continuing to hold on to a disregard for human life. Anger makes us destroyers instead of builders. It robs us of freedom and makes us prisoners. See, that picture in the video was so powerful. Our injustices is like pushing someone down to a lower level and lifting ourselves up as if we're better than they are. And this kind of injustice, this kind of anger, this kind of hatred, this kind of attitude of disregard for other human beings, it's committing murder. 1 John 3.15 tells us anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. About two months ago, Jared and I sat down to have lunch at Skyline Up in Alexandria to talk about this series, to develop it a little bit, and to talk about each week and some of the points that we would make. And then we came to this week. And I remember Jared asking me this question. He said, does someone deserve death for murdering someone else? My answer was yes. Then he said, does someone deserve death for getting angry and having hatred with someone else? And I paused for a moment because I knew what I was about to say is going to be very bold. 
But my answer was yes. Now, I'm not saying that every time you get angry or show hatred toward another human being, you should be tried in our judicial system and given the capital punishment. What I was saying is that whether you've taken the life of another human being through murder or you've stripped them of their identity and worth and value through your words and actions and hatred, you're just as deserving of hell. You're equally deserving of being eternally separated from God. And on the surface, that seems very unfair and unjust. But it won't if you understand the seriousness and the damage that anger and hatred leads to. It leads to destruction. It leads to abuse, people's worth and value being taken from them. It leads to injustice. And the more I thought about this command and the more I thought about this message, I couldn't help but think about Barabbas. If you don't know the story of Barabbas, the Bible describes him as a robber, a leader of an insurrection, and a murderer. And we're told in the Gospels that Pilate, who was to judge Jesus, found Jesus innocent. But because of this custom that the Jews had in that day, Pilate set up Jesus and Barabbas in front of a crowd of people, and this is what he said. Luke tells us this. You brought me this man, Jesus, as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for a charge against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him and release him to you. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. And then Luke tells us, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for for an insurrection in the city and for murder. And wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And for the third time, he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found no grounds for a death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished, a little slap on the wrist, and then release him to you. But the crowd, they kept insisting. They kept shouting. And we're told over in the book of Matthew that finally Pilate gave in. Matthew 27, 26. And he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. The one who was guilty was set free. The one who was innocent was put to death. The one who deserved death was released. But the one who deserved to be released was put to death. And the reason I couldn't help but think about this story... It's because the more I look at Barabbas, the more I see myself. I've used careless and demeaning words to talk about others. I've said some pretty hurtful things. I've treated people unjustly, unfairly, not with kindness. I've gotten angry and stayed angry with people for years and have allowed that grudge and anger to carry on and go unresolved. I'm guilty of breaking the sixth command just like Barabbas. But because Jesus cares about justice, but because Jesus loves mercy, because Jesus was innocent, but because Jesus was put to death, I get to walk free. Everyone in this room it's just like Barabbas. But because Jesus, wanting to reconcile us back to God, he took the penalty and the punishment for our sin on the cross so that we get to walk free. 
Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what Barabbas did after they unlocked the chains and he walked back out into the crowd. Perhaps he went out that night and took someone else's life. We don't know. But here's what I do know for you and I. For anyone who's been set free by the blood of Jesus, you've been given a task to go out and carry out that ministry of reconciliation that Jesus started on the cross. Jesus made our relationship with God right again. And we have an obligation to go and share that message with everyone. They deserve to hear about the man who can save them. But not just telling them about God, we also need to mend relationships in our own life. Relationships that are broken. Today's message is one that our world desperately needs to hear. Because there has been a nasty disregard for human life in our world. And I want you to hear this message this morning. If you have been a victim of injustice, you've been told you're not worth it, you don't have value, listen to this, you are worth it. You do have value given to you by your creator God because he wants to have a personal relationship with you. Each of us in this room have an obligation to carry up that ministry of reconciliation that Jesus started. And you can start in your own life this week. If you have an unresolved relationship in your life where you've held on to anger and hatred, go and be reconciled this week. If you have, through your words or actions, stripped someone of their identity as a person made in the image of God, go and be reconciled this week. Then let each of us be champions of seeking justice for all human life. Resolving to be careful with our words and actions and anger toward other humans. Caring for the oppressed, the widow, the alien, and the orphan. Loving mercy by lifting up the broken, bearing the burdens of others, and proclaiming the name of Jesus who reconciled us back to God. Seeking justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. Indeed, you are righteous. You are perfect. You are good, good, good. You're the creator of all things. And in creating us, you gave us your image. And we give you praise this morning because that means you want to have a relationship with us. You didn't just create us and leave us here to figure things out on our own. You desperately pursue us. But God, oftentimes we find ourselves to be like Barabbas. Where we've stripped people of their dignity and worth. And God, today we confess our sins before you. Knowing that we need forgiveness for them. And we thank you for Jesus who paid the penalty so that we can be set free. But God, I pray that you would give us the power through your spirit to carry out the ministry of reconciliation, that we would seek out justice in our world, look for the oppressed, the orphan, the widow, the alien, and care for them, carry their burdens and lift them up to show love as you should love to us. God, we pray this all in the name that's above every other name. The name of Jesus. 
Amen.